Corinthians and we come this morning to chapter 11 and to the first section of that chapter um, and I suppose it's with some fear and trepidation that we come to it uh, given that it's reckoned by many to be not only the hardest part of this letter uh, but many would argue the hardest part of the whole New Testament um, to interpret um, so I, I, I want us to go slowly, I want us to go carefully and I trust that by the Spirit's enabling we'll get somewhere at least with these verses this morning. Um, I thought maybe as I was preparing it, the, the best way of looking at this this morning would be to do something we don't normally do. Um, I'm always conscious that in preaching there is a sense in which you're producing the rabbit out of the hat, if you know what I mean. You sort of say, look, this is what Scripture means and you don't actually show how you ever got it in the hat and got it out in the first place. Almost like a, a magical trick. And I thought rather than do that this morning, it might be helpful as we look at these verses to actually do it as though we're doing part of the Bible study on it in preparation for the message, if you like, and see how we would actually approach trying to understand these verses. So, time permitting, I want us to look at three questions. first one is this, how do we approach biblical hermeneutics? And I'll explain what I mean by that um, as we look at it. And then two questions that arise from this passage. Um, is gender still significant in the church? And secondly, must women cover their heads in church? So firstly, how do we approach biblical hermeneutics? By that I mean, how do we approach interpreting what that, a passage of scripture is actually saying? Um, and we can identify many things in the process, uh, but the particular thing I want us to focus on this morning as we look at this, is the issue as to whether something is written into a culture with reference to that culture, or whether it's written in a timeless sense. In other words, if this was being written by God through a human author to us today in this church, would it say exactly the same words as they are now, or would the wording be different because we're in a different culture and a different age? In other words, is it relevant, is it relative, or is it absolute, what is written there? Now, to explain it, if I just give you a very simple example from Scripture, and I'm sure you'll follow what I mean. If you were to look at Luke 22, verse 19, you would discover... Jesus there at the institution of the Lord's Supper and this is what we read in Luke 22:19. and he, that is Christ, took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. So there we have a very clear command of Jesus Christ to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And twice a month we join together as a church to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the way that Jesus did it there, in remembrance of him. In fact, we usually quote those words as we celebrate it. We do this in remembrance of him. So we obey that command as it's written. Maybe only minutes, maybe a few hours before that, Jesus gave another command to exactly the same group of people, the disciples, exactly the same setting. This is what he says. He's just washed their feet and John 13, 14, we read this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Which begs the obvious question, when did we last get down and wash each other's feet? We don't do it. So why is it that we've seen there two commands of the Lord, clearly given to the same group of people at the same time, the same setting, one of them we say we must do exactly what's said there to the letter as it's done there and the other one we say we don't believe that we've got to do that in the way that it's written there. What's the difference? The, the difference is that the first one is absolute. The first one is not 
culturally conditioned. It's not given into a, a, a cultural setting. It stands for all time. So we do it as it's written there. The second one is written into a culture. The, the roads were dusty. They the, the, the wore sandals. You would come into a house and although the rest of you had a bath before you came out or whatever, your feet would be dirty and so a servant would come forward and wash your feet for you. And so Jesus does that for his disciples. Now, when we find something that's cultural, something that's relative, we don't just copy it. What we do is we say, now what is it that God's saying behind that? Let's get back to the, 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 the thing that's independent of culture. And when we do that, what do we discover? What's God saying? He's saying, look, I want you to serve each other. I, I, I want you to look on each other as higher than yourselves. I want you to treat each other as though they're the guests and you're the servants and treat them in that way. So that's, that's the absolute, that's what the timeless truth that lies behind it. And then what of course we need to do is say, now how does that apply in our culture and day? Now if we lived in a place with dusty paths and we all wore sandals, it might be that we say, okay, what we do is we get down and wash each other's feet. But in our culture, it's more like we say, well, we'll offer to do the shopping for each other and we'll, we'll offer to help each other out in practical ways and things like that, to, to serve each other and to elevate each other uh, above ourselves. So, that's how we approach interpreting Scripture. That's a key part of biblical hermeneutics. And it doesn't matter if you're just coming to read it on your own or you're coming to preach it. You, we need to think through that process. Otherwise, you go horribly wrong. I mean, in Scripture, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone hasn't got a sword, uh, let him serve his person and go out and buy one. Well, we don't immediately all say, oh, we've all got to go out and arm ourselves with swords because Jesus said so. But if you're not careful, you end up doing that sort of thing. If you don't go through that process, however briefly, of saying, is this contextual? Is this just relative? And behind it lies some sort of absolute truth. Or is it absolute and we have to obey it as it is written? Now, there's a very big danger here if you go wrong. If you start looking at things that are relative and making them absolute, you end up with legalism. You end up saying, we've got to follow everything the Bible says, uh, every, whether it's cultural or not, we've got to do exactly what it says there, and you just end up with thousands and thousands of rules. And you end up with no freedom in Christ at all. You just say, that's what it says, we've got to do that. That's what it says, we've got to do that. That's what there are places where Scripture does say that, and we've got to do it. But you end up doing that with everything. That's legalism. On the other hand, where the Bible does give you an absolute command and you just treat it as relative, you end up with liberalism. You end up saying there is no timeless, objective truth in this book. All it is is a whole series of principles that you are to take and see how they fit in with your society and apply them in the way that's contemporary with your society. Political correctness would love that, wouldn't they? You know, all you do is you say, well, our culture says this, our culture does that, so how do we fit what the Bible says in with that? That's liberalism. Now, in the Bible, there are both things. There are things where God says, black and white, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Things that are timeless, they're not to do with any culture, they're there and we're to obey them. And there are things that are cultural and there we have to get behind that to the absolute truth, move it into our culture and say, how do we apply it there? Now, can I suggest to you, that approach has gone very much out of a lot of Christian 
thinking, which is why I've spent the time going through this. There are a lot of Christians who seem to think that God's word is some sort of, almost a magic box that you sort of dip into and see what you get out of. Do you know what I mean? Their, their approach seems to be that you come to the Bible, you open it, you read a passage, and God says something to you through that passage. Or you just randomly even just open and say, oh, that God, that's what God's saying to me today. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God can certainly speak to you through that. God speaks to us through our conscience. He speaks to us through our newspapers that we read. He speaks to us through conversations with friends. He's speaking to us all day long through everything that impacts us if our minds are renewed by his spirit. Everything almost that we look at, God should be challenging our thinking and our mindset through, through what it is, good or bad. It should have some sort of effect on the way we think. But if that's your approach to studying the scripture, then your scripture has become no more than your newspaper or something like that. When we talk about this being the inerrant, infallible word of God, we don't mean that it's that. If your approach to it is you simply come and say, oh, well, that's what God's saying, and take it totally out of context. You can't do that and claim you're basing what you're doing on the infallible, inerrant word of God. You're not. You're basing it on your chance sticking your finger in and, and your momentary interpretation of that verse. It might be God's Spirit prompting you to think that. And praise the Lord if it is. And you might be right in responding to that in the right way to God. I'm, I'm not decrying that for one second. But that is not how we approach studying the Bible as a general rule. The way we approach studying the Bible is going through that process of saying is this cultural, is it absolute, if it's cultural what lies behind it, how do we then apply that in our day and age? Now, having said all of that, we come to the first of the two questions I want to look at in this passage, and that is this. Is gender still significant in the church? seems to me one of the big problems we have when we come to any issue that's cultural in the Bible is there's not one culture involved, but two. There's the culture that that was written into, and there's the culture we live in. And just as we've got to get that meaning of God's out of that culture we've also got to get our minds out of our own culture otherwise we just find our interpretation immediately biased by the culture we live in now the culture we live in has has got all sorts of ideas that are totally contrary to scripture and if we don't recognise that we're going to go terribly wrong I'll give you a little example Um, if you go back a couple of hundred years uh, servants sat upstairs the gentry sat downstairs therefore when this church was built they didn't put such good quality pews upstairs because they're just for the servants they're not for the gentry um, many churches the gentry could buy their pew they could pay a certain amount each year and that was their pew so they could just roll up when they wanted to and their pew was there available for them whereas the servants um, I mean this happened in Spurgeon staying at down there in London they would be queuing up in the streets to get one of the available seats to sit in Now that in our culture and day is horrific. But in their culture and day they saw that as perfectly right. So we have to recognise that we're blinded, we're shaped in our own minds by our own culture as well. And so somehow we've got to step out of that if we're going to understand any passage of scripture aright. And of course one of the big influences in our culture over the 20th century has been the role of women. In society, in the home, and everywhere, from the suffragettes through the changes that came with the world wars, um, through what's happened now in the homes and so on. Much of that has been absolutely good and right. The inequalities that existed, the way women were often abused, those things were horrific and have rightly been dealt with. But we can't escape the fact 
that in other areas it has gone too far and it has actually gone clearly against what the Bible teaches. And so there is a possibility that when we come to this passage, depending on what our perception is of all of that that's happened in our culture, we're going to have a bias here. And we're going to have to try and deal with that bias if we're going to understand what God's actually saying here. And the first issue is this, is gender still significant in the church? And I suggest to you the key verses that deal with that, there's really one question here but it opens out into two and this is one of the two, is verses 3, 8 and 9 and 11 and 12. Let me just read them to you. Verse 3, Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Verse 8 to 9, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And verses 11 and 12, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Now can I suggest we immediately see a couple of things there. The, The first obvious one is that Paul is pointing back to creation in what he's saying here. He's talking to the New Testament church, he's talking about what's going to happen in the church, but but his reasoning, his mind goes all the way back to how God created the world in the first place. That is very, very significant. If you're going to argue that something is cultural, you don't find it being related back to creation. If it relates back to creation, it's timeless. Paul's saying, look, what applied in creation still applies Corinthian church today. It's before the fall, it's got nothing to do with the law, it's got nothing to do with Israel. It's when God made the world. And what does he say there? Verse 9, he created man and then from man, verse 9, he made woman for man. There is a difference. God actually designed an inherent difference in man and woman. He created man. Man was not complete in himself in a relational way. And God made woman to be that counterpart to man, to balance man, to be a helpmate to man, to together meet each other's needs. That was God's creation intent. Verse 3, the head of a woman is man. So, when we come to a statement like that, our conclusion is that it's absolute, it's not cultural. It's not that in those days they treated women different today, therefore it applied then and it doesn't apply today. Because Paul is intentionally taking it all the way back to creation. And he's saying that's the way God made it, that's the way it stands. When Christ died on the cross, did he change created order? No. When Christ died on the cross, did he somehow negate created order? No. He affected the fall, he affected the result of the fall, but not creation. And so that still stands. Now, does that therefore mean that men can abuse women? Does that therefore mean men can lord it over women? Can a man come up to his wife and say, well, I'm your head, so you better get on and do that while I put my feet up and do nothing? Is that what he said? Of course not. Now, how do we know that? The answer's there very clearly in verse 3. This is one of the most amazing statements I suggest you find on the headship of man over woman in the Bible. Did you notice it as we read verse 3? I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. It's this bit. And the head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father. Now Paul's very clearly saying, look, in your situation, the way that women and men relate, there is a headship issue, there is a 
a, a difference, an inherent difference here. The pattern for it is Christ and God the Father. Christ recognised God the Father as headship over him. Did God the Father abuse Christ? Did God the Father take advantage of Christ? Did God the Father somehow lord it over Jesus Christ? Of course he didn't. Jesus Christ willingly, wondrously, joyfully chose to submit himself under the Father in order to come to redeem us. And Paul says that's the pattern for headship between a man and a woman. It's that the woman should joyfully, gladly, willingly recognise the headship of man over her because that's the created order and the man should recognise it as well because it's the created order and the way it should work out in practice is the way that Christ relates to the Father. It should be a loving, mutual encouragement, mutual enjoyment of each other. It's not that one should be the slave to the other or one should feel inferior to the other. It's not a matter of supremacy. The Father and Son are co-equal. Jesus Christ is not in any sense less than the Father, is he? They are are totally co-equal. But he submits to the Father because that is his chosen role in relating to us. So the answer to the question, is gender still significant and relevant in the church and in society and in the home? The answer is yes. Indeed, even elsewhere in, uh, in Timothy where, where Paul talks about it and, and he mentions there the fall and the, the effect of the fall, he still in the preceding verse talks about the created order. And even if you're going to argue, yes, but he also talks about the fall, nevertheless, he's, okay, so Christ has, has dealt with the fall, but he hasn't dealt with all the effects of the fall yet. We still, every day, experience the effects of the fall in this world as Christians, don't we? We haven't suddenly been taken out of that because Christ has saved us. And he's still saying it to the New Testament church post Christ's death and resurrection. He's saying, look, there has to be this difference there because of the created order and because Eve caused Adam to fall. So there's my answer to the first question. It's absolute and it's right that we recognise different roles for men and women within the church, within the home and within society. It's not that one's better than the other. It's not that one's higher than the other. It's not that one's more valuable than the other. They are equal but different. A simple illustration of it would be if I said to you, oh, can you possibly lend me five pounds? You could give me a five pound note. You could give me five one pound coins. It's five pound. It doesn't matter which it is. But they are different. Very different. You try sticking a five pound note in a slot machine that wants a pound coin it ain't going to work you know they're different but equal and equally valuable what about the second question then must women cover their heads in church I'm sort of guessing that you already have hoped for the right answer in here and you're probably already banking on it and and maybe you've already gone through this process but maybe you just don't wear a hat because well no one's ever told you you've got to you know, maybe you just happen to have started coming to a church where women generally don't wear hats. That wouldn't be a good reason not to wear one, would it? You know, it's, it's not about tradition. It's not about what others do. It's about what does God say? And, and if, when we come to this passage, what we discover is that God says, you have got to wear a hat, then ladies, you're going to have to go and get yourselves hats. We don't tamper with God's word. 
So let's have a look at it and see what he says. I'd suggest here if we can separate out the verses that particularly pertain to this, it's verses 4 to 7, verse 10 and then 13 to 16. 4 to 7 reads like this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head was shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her head, hair cut off. And if, if it is, and if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 10, For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. And verses 13 to 16, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. So anyone, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. There are different interpretations of what's going on here, but can I say to what I believe? I believe is the right one from the study of God's word. And that is simply this, that at that day, in that culture, basically men and women dressed the same. There wasn't, uh, we know this from history, there is, there is no distinctive difference in their dress, except for the fact that women wore a, I suppose you call it a scarf or something, a head cover, not a veil, uh, over their head, over their hair. They wore a, a, a scarf, in, in public at least. That was their, their dress code. Men didn't. And the only real exception to that rule was that prostitutes and mistresses didn't wear it. They were, after all, advertising their trade. They were trying to drum up business. And so what a prostitute would do would, would not to wear that, but rather to flaunt her hair. I mean, after all, her hair's a glory. You know, women, you've only got to look at the adverts on television to know how, how much uh, time and money and effort some women put into their hair. And, and, and they would show off their hair. That was their way of attracting men. Look at me, look at my wonderful hair. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work for me, but some of you ladies it would. And, and, and that's the way they would get their business. So what's happening here in the church? Well, we don't know. There's two suggestions made. One suggestion that's made is that there was some sort of women's lib going on in the church and women were saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to wear my head coverings to church. We don't know that. Uh, the, the other suggestion, which is quite as possible, maybe even more so, is that they were coming with their head coverings on and then in the activity of worship, in, in the excitement of worship, getting caught up in the, the joy of worship, they, they were discarding their, their head coverings as just being a nuisance and in the way. Maybe getting a bit hot as well, I don't know. Either way, the end result was clear. There are other women in that church who are still wearing their head coverings. What do they think about it? just imagine if you believe it's an important thing that you have your head covered ladies and you've gone to the trouble of covering yours and next to you there's a lady who's throwing hers off or coming without it and throwing her hair around how are you going to feel about that? More, how are the men going to feel about it? How's the man sitting behind you going to feel? When looking at the back of you what he sees is exactly what he sees when he goes down the road and a prostitute's walking in front of him How's he going to be able to worship God? How's he going to be able to focus on Christ when right there in front of his eyes is the appearance of a prostitute applying for a trade? Of course he's not going to be able to. So Paul says, no, women, you must keep your head coverings on in church. This is absolutely vital. 
So the question then is, is that cultural or is that absolute? Well, I would suggest to you it's quite easy to argue that that's cultural, isn't it? If, if, if you go to an area, and I'm not for one moment suggesting you do, but I mean, if you imagine in your mind that you're in an area where there are prostitutes around on the streets at night, that the way of indicating that they're prostitutes is not that they keep their heads uncovered, whereas all the women have got a covering over their head, is it? They, I would assume, wear very short dresses and, and very low-cut tops and uh, and so on. they've got ways of indicating they've got wet areas they hang around they've got ways of showing that that's their business and that's their trade and they're after you and I understand that in parts of Africa they do considerably more than that but that's, that, that's the sort of way they project who, who they are and what they're doing but it's got nothing to do with whether or not they've got a head covering on so this is cultural so what we have to do is to step back from that and say so what is it that God's saying behind that Well, there's two things, isn't there? One is the fact that they're looking like prostitutes and the other thing is they could be at least interpreted as saying they're rejecting this idea of a headship of men. It was there in uh, verse uh, 10. For this reason and because of the angels that women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. They're they're also, by their culture, throwing away that which indicates that they recognise that there is a distinction between men and women. So if we get back to the absolute, what God is saying is, look, it's important that we recognise the distinction between men and women. It's important that we don't try and behave in such a way that we give the impression we don't accept that anymore, that we reject that, that we're going down the world's path of saying men and women are identical, not equal, but identical. There's no difference between them. And it's important that we don't behave in a way that a loose woman or a man would behave that we don't come into church in such a way that we would distract each other from the worship of God. That's what he's talking about here. So how do we apply that? We then bring that forward into our day and culture. Now this is why I'm really in danger of treading on toes and I really don't want to do that. Can I very gently just try and suggest a couple of ways and please nobody take this personal. I have not thought about anybody in the church or anywhere else. I've just sat down and tried to think how we could think about applying this in our culture. Men and women, not one or the other. I've been in churches and it's come to worship and I've stood up to worship the Lord and in the seat in front of me has been a teenage girl who's been very scantily dressed and she's been dancing in the worship. Now can I say, with the best will in the world, I defy any man, short of shutting his eyes, which is what I did, being able to concentrate and focus on your worship of Almighty God. When right in front of your eyes you've got an attractive girl dancing and and scantily dressed dancing at that, you can't do it. And and, and so it, it becomes damaging on those around you who are trying to worship God. We're not thinking, as we've been looking in the previous three chapters, about our brothers and sisters anymore. We think just about me. Now, I can contrast that with another girl who, um, in fact, even does sort of almost gymnastics when she's worshipping the Lord. And I've, I've worshipped with her, but she always sat in the back and she always went behind the back row to do it. So that she wasn't a distraction to anybody else when they were worshipping the Lord. Now, whatever you think about the way she was worshipping the Lord, she certainly did it in a way that wasn't damaging to others. And I commend her for that. It's all about how we act for brothers and sisters in Christ when we're trying to worship God. 
He's a holy God. He's an awesome God. He's here in this place to receive the worship of our, our hearts as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should do everything we can to make it inducive to each other being able to worship him and focus on him and delight in him. So look, let me just ask you a couple of questions. One would be something like this. When you think about what you're going to wear to church, and men and women, I'm not aiming this at one, but what sort of questions do you think about? You know, for example, when you, when you go to choose your, your clothing that you're going to wear, does a thought something like this run to your mind? That, that, that shows off my body well, or, or I, I look good in that. I won't wear that, I don't look good in that. If that's the sort of reason, can I just ask you the obvious question that comes after it? Whose opinion is it that you're concerned about in church? Whose opinion is it? Who, who is it in the church who you feel that you've got to dress in such a way that they think your body looks better in that than it does in that? We're here to worship God, aren't we? We're here to praise and magnify Him. If what's going through my mind as I'm choosing my clothes is, oh, I look, I look a lot better in that outfit, that's the outfit I'm going to wear, why are you thinking about those things when you're coming to worship God? Because I suggest to you that it might just be that what you're actually thinking is, I want people to find me attractive. And if you're thinking that sort of thoughts when you're coming in to worship God, aren't your thoughts wrong? We shouldn't be trying to get other people to look at us and think us attractive. We should be trying to get them to look at Christ and see him as attractive. Shouldn't we? The idea isn't that I come here so that everybody says to me, as I come in, oh, you look nice this morning. Oh, that's a nice outfit you've got on. You know, I'm not suggesting, now please don't misunderstand me. Of course we want to look smart, we want to look right, we're here to worship God, we don't just pick up the clothes we've been wearing for the last week doing building and covered in dirt and grime and coming here and say, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that for one minute. I'm just, I'm just suggesting that it would be good sometimes to ask those sort of questions. Equally well, you know, if, if you say, oh, I look ten years younger in that one than I do in that one, you know, I've got some clothes at home I never wear now because I think, oh, I don't want to wear that one. You know, but, but I just suggesting we want to think why we're thinking like that when we're coming to worship God. A better thought might be, if I wear this, am I going to be less distracting to other people? Because that would be good. If I wear this, would this mean that I just blend more into the, the congregation because that would be excellent and it's not just what we wear you know when we're worshipping God if someone sort of turning around and looking all around behind all the time and that can be very distracting you know this, this, it's, it's this attitude of mind that says how can I do what I'm here to do in such a way that I help others to do it as well and that wasn't happening in the church of Corinth and it should happen in every church. We dress in a way that's modest and becoming, in a way that doesn't distract others and doesn't tempt them in their thoughts. Ladies, you probably don't begin to know how easily men's thoughts go wrong. Um, I can admit that. It doesn't take hardly anything and our minds start thinking wrongly and uh, it's probably the same with us men we need to be more careful about ladies you know because we're here for the glory of the king aren't we and we're here to encourage and help and build up each other 
and rejoice in the differences that exist between us, men and women, old and young. Not in a way of competition, not in a way of being derogatory of each other, not in a way of thinking we're worth more than each other, but just recognising that God made us different for his glory and for our blessing. We're going to sing as we finish number 388. May the the fragrance